Devices are connected to the internet more and more these days. Everything from your washing machine to children's toys can have some kind of online capability. Some of it's convenient. You can change the colour and intensity of lighting in your home or keep an eye on your pets when you're out of the house. Some devices are just fun novelties. Talking dolls, accessories for Pokemon Go. What they have in common is that many of the people who own them haven't considered the security risk of, for example, having a camera connected to the internet in their home, or a doll that records their children's voices. Today, we're looking at the risks and benefits of Internet of Things technology, and how you can make sure your devices aren't giving away your personal information. I'm Caitlin McHugh. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. The phrase Internet of Things has been around since 1999. The concept has been around for a little longer. In 1988, a group of grad students at Carnegie Mellon University in the United States modified a Coke vending machine to connect it to the university Ethernet. The online machine let them check whether there were cold drinks available before they made the walk all the way downstairs to buy one. Fast forward to today, and you're probably at least near an Internet of Things or IoT device right now. Until recently, they were a novelty for people inclined to tinker with technology and new gadgets. Now, there are roughly 8 billion IoT devices online and in use worldwide. Dr. Ying He is a senior lecturer in the School of Electrical and Data Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. She says IoT devices cover a pretty broad range of technology. Um, Internet of Things are a more broader um, concept of connecting different categories of devices, not just PCs, um, tablets and phones. So IoT devices are just electronics with online capability, outside of your standard internet-enabled technology like phones, tablets and computers. They have myriad applications. It could go into other devices, for example, in our household fridge, TV, um, microwave, rice cooker. Um, in the industry, it could go into like the robots, um, any controlling system. Um, or in the cars, it could go down to the car controlling system and then all the sensors. Um, there are other applications, for example, agriculture. It could go into the um, water system or the monitoring system of the plants growing. Um, so all those kind of things. But there are security issues specific to IoT devices that technology experts have been flagging for some time. Um, one of the things that's become very clear, it was predicted at the start, and unfortunately it's come to fruition, is that um, the security protocols in most of the consumer, IT, the ones you're talking about, the smart home and wearables, those sorts of and toys, those sorts of devices have much less security inbuilt into them than, say, conventional computing. This is Kayleen Manwaring, Senior Lecturer in the School of Taxation and Business Law at the University of New South Wales. She says there are a few factors that make IoT devices less secure than standard online devices. And that happens for a variety of reasons, for costs, inexperience, because we've got different... We're not getting 
big tech firms creating these things. No, we're not getting the Microsofts creating these things. We're getting consumer electronics firms and consumer products firms who don't know much about security, but also the form factor we don't have in terms of often these things don't have screens. <laughs> um, so it's this security on a lot and a lot of the low-cost items is very poor and there's been a reasonable amount of security research showing they be hacked quite easily. And some of the security is poor because the manufacturers um, don't embed good security protocols. As Kayleen mentions, some IoT devices don't actually have room for decent security. Ying He says some devices are so tiny they can't actually store security measures on the device itself. Say, for example, based on the computation capacity or capability of the device, sometimes the very, very small size devices are unable to uh, compute a higher complex level of encryption, decryption algorithm, then you may have to push that a bit more to the server side. Um, so there is going to be the design trade-off in there. So that's from a designer point of view. But even with devices that have sufficient security, there's always human error. People simply don't consider security for IoT devices the same way they might for phones or personal computers. The other reason it's poor is, of course, people who buy it don't know a lot about security and so don't even realise that there's things they need to do. This lack of awareness has had sinister consequences. One of those examples was relatively recently in the States. There was a number of incidences of home security systems, which had speakers and cameras, etc., all connected, and they were being hacked. Um, and racial abuse was being um, hurled at people, you know, including children in their rooms by uh, malicious actors. While it is partly a consumer's responsibility to make their devices secure, IoT devices are new and rapidly evolving. People simply aren't aware of the security risks. And that was blamed not so much on um, security problems within the way the system was set up by the manufacturers or the service providers, but because there were some poor security protocols by consumers. But these things are complex. We're not very used to um, setting up security protocols around our internet-connected dolls. So, and there's not a lot of really good information around out there. There are some simple remedies to this issue, says Ying He. From an individual user point of view, like if you're a user of the IoT system, let's say if you own a smart home device or a wearable device or you're a user of the healthcare devices, end user, um, you could... Um, try to set up a more stronger password and keep your app or firmware on the device updated. Um, also protect your personal information. Um, a lot of those, sometimes some apps trying to attack your IoT devices, say connected to your phone, will try to ask you to give rights to those apps. So uh, just don't randomly give rights to the unknown apps or parties um, to prevent this Mm, unknown authorization to um, the app that's trying to attack you. But what about the information you're giving away to the manufacturers themselves, often unknowingly? A lot of these devices are designed and built to collect data and send it on to the manufacturer or the service provider. Um, 
that's that. For example, the price of the actual um, device itself isn't enough. Isn't isn't the business model? The business model is the data that can be collected, traded, used, etc. There's a whole range of data brokers who buy this sort of data and sell it on. And so, a lot of the, the issue we have is. Um, Lots of these devices are not uh, are sending off data that you wouldn't necessarily think um, it would be t- um, tracked or of interest to the service provider or the supplier of the device, and it's not partic- may not be particularly of interest to them, but it's going to be of interest to other people. And they, there's a big market in data, particularly in consumer data, because people buy it so they can t- create personalised advertising, for example. Um, and while consumers agree to share this data, they aren't necessarily well informed about what they're sharing. But it's, the privacy policies tend to be ridiculously long, hard to access, written in very complex, unintelligible language, and you're not told who's getting it and why they're getting it and what they're doing with it. Um, and that's um, been and that's been going on for a long time. And consumers who've been um, interviewed just go, we just we don't know it. We can't manage it. There's it, there, everything is too long. Supposedly we're consenting to this, but we can't get the service unless we consent. We can't read the privacy policies because there's too many of them. We don't even when we try to read them, they're too complex. We don't understand them. They're too vague. So there's some significant issues. It's similar to the issues people have with big tech companies like Facebook and Google. There's little transparency around what data is collected, and like Facebook and Google, the price of the product is your information, sold on to other companies or used by the manufacturer for their own advertising. There's another cost to the proliferation of these devices that isn't exacted on the consumer. The environmental cost of billions of new electronics, many of which end up discarded not long after they're bought. Especially per device price of this IoT device aren't that expensive, so are fairly cheaper say, compared to mobile phones and computers. So people from an end user point of view, they tend not to care about um, considering reusing them or keep them for a longer time compared to other electronic devices. It's not just an issue of individual consumers throwing devices out once the novelty wears off. The same storage issues that mean some IoT devices can't store their own security measures also makes them hard to update. If something like a smart grid network, which allows utility companies to read meters remotely, needs a hardware upgrade, you're looking at potentially hundreds of thousands of devices going into landfill. Right now, we've seen um, quite a lot of um, IoT applications in the market already. Um, we expect that um, IoT devices could increase maybe exponentially in numbers um, in the future. Then we would see this problem of with the protocol technology improvement or the previous stages of IoT devices, people will have to track that device and buy a new device instead of updating the firmware or software on the existing device. So those old devices will just have to go to waste. And we haven't really had a good understanding of how do we recycle this 
um, massive number of old devices. Um, if you think about, say, from smart grid, um, electronic power meter point of view, one city could have billions of the power meters. Then if you can't do a software upgrading, if you have to do a hardware upgrading, then you need to throw away the old devices. Then how do you um, properly recycle this device or reuse them? A similar issue occurs when consumer devices become outdated and companies stop supporting them. The smart speaker company Sonos landed in hot water at the start of this year when it introduced a recycle mode for old speakers. Users could access a discount on new speakers if they accessed this mode, which would then erase all data on the speakers and render them inoperable. The company backed off the plan when consumer rights groups protested, but other IoT device owners haven't had the same luck. Automatic pet feeders, exercise bikes and Wi-Fi connected light bulbs have been rendered inoperable or less functional by manufacturers for various reasons. Lack of support for old models, patent disputes and unspecified tech issues among them. These devices are quite um, complex. They're not just a product, they're hardware and software and other sorts of things. And you might buy the product, but you don't, you're only getting all the other stuff essentially as a service. And that's, as a service, it can be cut off at any time. For example, from an intellectual property perspective, you've got a software license to use the software in that device. And if the provider, for some reasons, decides to restrict your access or stop your access on intellectual property grounds, they can. And that can make the, the device useless. It can brick the device. The other thing, of course, is if there's services or updates needed, etc., and the supply goes out of business or it's acquired and um, the person who acquires it decides not to continue running with the service that's important for the device to work, then you've got something that you might have bought six months ago and is um, useless to you. For example, that's what's happened with Revolve. Some of the devices they were running when a Google acquired them um, they said, we're not going to support these. And so these devices that people had bought were essentially useless because they just had a block of plastic and metal that they couldn't do anything with. So how do you solve a problem like IoT? Simply don't use these devices? Stick to older, dumber technology that doesn't require an internet connection to function? Kayleen doesn't see that as a solution. I see that as very problematic because some of these things can be immensely useful for people, for example, for people with disabilities. Voice-controlled smart home hubs that have, that are, that in, are linked to all sorts of home automation, they're, they're, you know, the data problem is there. But for someone who's wants to, who wants to age at home and has arthritis, having something that's voice-controlled that can do all these fiddly little, you know, lift blinds and... Um, turn on switches, et cetera, et cetera, that you might find quite difficult because you've got um, some form of disability, you've got arthritis or something else, they're incredibly useful. But people who, for whom they are, you know, life-changing um, aren't protected. So I just don't think the just don't use it argument works. The reason we need some form of regulation is because for so many people, these there is, it has immense potential there are other applications where IoT devices are becoming indispensable. 
in terms of the uh, healthcare situation, for example, um, like in Australia and also a lot of countries where the patients could be in remote, remote areas and um, then we could use this IoT system to help the remote areas um, patients to be monitored um, and also we could use it to monitor elderly people. What's required then is stronger protection for consumers. Other countries have voluntary codes of conduct. Australia is looking to adopt something similar. Kayleen is unimpressed with them. They have just introduced a voluntary Internet of Things code of conduct, which is at least something. But that being said, it's based on the UK one, which was introduced a couple of years ago. The UK have already said, well, this code is useless, not because of the content of the code per se, but because it's not mandatory. And they've said that before the Australians released their version, which is very similar to the UK version. But the Australians are going, well, we'll make this voluntary. And it's the, the wording around introducing the code has been very wishy-washy. It's going to be expensive. It's going to change business models. It'll have to change manufacturing models. And a lot of this stuff is manufactured offshore anyway. So um, the, the idea that it's going to change much, a voluntary code, I think that's very unlikely that's going to do much at all. It's a great disappointment in some regards a technology that has such potential to improve people's lives, has instead become a trawler net for people's private data rather than a public common good. I think the immense potential really sits in the healthcare and aged care industries, in agricultural and environmental monitoring and in city management. And there we can do so many amazing things there to make people's lives better. The problem is we don't want to make people's lives worse at the same time by encouraging essentially the fact that we can't have a private life anymore because the price that we are paying is a whole lot of very hidden surveillance. The government is looking into better protections for consumers, but it's a long battle ahead. The regulators at least have woken up to it, as in the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission at least. Um, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner has been a fairly very weak force in this area. A lot of that's not their fault, um, as in they've been desperately underfunded for years. Um, no, the government and industry isn't interested in funding it. They, can't, can't, they see it as counterproductive to their interests because, of course, the government likes data as well. It loves data. <laughs> and so it's against the interest of both uh, the government and the um, private industry to look at increasing protections for um, individuals. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. Additional production assistance for this episode was provided by Kate Rafferty. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures at 2ser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Caitlin McHugh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>